of the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. This is part two of the Starting a Business episode. It went long when we recorded, so I ended up splitting it up in two parts. In this episode, we're still joined by Carla, and Odin Pong from Inkwell Games joins us. And on to the show. So, you want to introduce yourself and your company? Sure. Uh, my name is Odin Pong. I am uh, the lesser half of Inkwell Games. Uh, we're focusing on rolling rights. So, and the other half is Joey, I'm forgetting his last name. Scouten. I'm sure I botched it. It's very Dutch. And hopefully we'll be having both of you on a later episode to talk about rolling rights. That would be pretty cool. Dan was here earlier, but he had to leave uh, early, so it kind of worked out and we're switching over, but Carly is still here. Um, not to entirely rehash everything we went over earlier, but, um, we just talked about like reasons to, for starting a business legal and financial. So just curious, especially cause your partner's in another country. So mm -hmm. that's, and, um, if I remember correctly, you incorporated in the U S though, right? Yes. So what were just some of the, some of the aspects to that, like reasons you incorporated in the U S instead of, uh, where is it? The Netherlands? Yeah, that's where that's where Joey is. So really the reason is that I know a lot more about US business law than I do about Dutch business law. And Joey is really focusing on the game development side of things and I'm doing more of the paperwork and you know, articles of operation, those sorts of things. And I'm just more familiar with the US laws. So that's that's why we went that that route. So it's it's pretty similar to what um Carl and Dan had said because they did Galactic Rapper together, but they incorporated in Alabama because Nick was doing the paperwork and he knew that better. So, yeah, go to go to where you know the rules. That's right, and hopefully, I'm I'm sure we're going to make a lot of mistakes. Hopefully, they're not paperwork ones. Yeah, so I mean, that's pretty much it brings us up to up to speed on the early stuff. But the um, so what we were just talking about is conventions and the price of attending conventions as a publisher, and and you guys are a very new publisher, like just just started up uh, a couple months ago, right? Yeah, um, technically December 18th, 2018. So you have, have you done any um, conventions as a publisher? No. Because you haven't, you haven't produced a game yet, so you're not really in the selling stage yet. Correct. We're not, uh, we're not in the selling stage yet. Uh, at least as far as retail is concerned, we are certainly selling the idea of the games we're creating. Um, I'm publishing, but yeah, as far as, uh, actual retail sales, zero. Why, why did you two decide to start a business? Um, I know you're focusing on rolling rights now. Is that the plan to be that you're, you're only focused for the company or you may or may not branch out? Um, well, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, close any doors obviously, but <clears throat> The reason that I that we started with Roland Rights is um, I've been lurking, for lack of a better term, in the games first for, you know, five or so years, just around observing, reading blogs, interacting with podcasters, you know, that sort of thing, trying to find the sort of my spot in the in the games verse. And uh, what I found was as I was going through and I'm looking and I found that I really liked rolling rights and as far as I could tell no one had ever made just a book of rolling rights you know an anthology of rolling rights that you could take with you um, I saw a lot of people talking about 
you know, the fatigue of having to learn new games all the time and game night is a kind of a chore. They're losing shelf, you know, they don't have enough shelf space for the games that they own, much less getting new ones. Um, and, and really Roland writes for me in a book addressed both of those problems, right? It's 20 games in two books. So yeah. it, it doesn't take up much shelf space and they're relatively simple from the standpoint of, you know, it's not a, uh, it's not a heavy Euro, you know, they're component light, so they're not very expensive. And so that's, that's where we started. Um, and then I, I needed an expert, somebody who knew more about rolling rights than I do. Um, and Joey, I, I would guess, um, obviously other than Suzanne, uh, and Mandy who are the queens of Roland rights and has just an insane amount of knowledge around them. But Joey had just run the, the uh, Roland Wright jam last fall. And, uh, and I think the guys probably read and played more obscure Roland rights than most people on earth and given a lot of feedback around. As, as the, uh, that's when I first started to interact with him on Twitter. He was starting his Roland Wright research and was just, like going through like every single thing, like more than I had ever even heard of. And now he's just releasing uh, some of his data on his website and really interesting stuff. Yeah. He's uh, that guy is smart as a whip and willing to share his knowledge. And that's been invaluable for the company. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a relative noob when it comes to that kind of stuff. So let's move on to, uh, so you're, you said it's 20 games in the, the anthology you're producing now. So is that from 20 different designers? 21 designers, yeah. One is co-designed. Yeah, so what was the process, especially being a new company? I guess there's a lot of designers very excited to get their games published, so it's probably not a terribly difficult thing to get designers. But what was the process like for that, being a new company and trying to get people, especially when you're restricted to the specific form of roll and writes that can work well in a book? Like some require lots of bits and markers and stuff, even though they're just a roll and write, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, well, we first we had to just come up with a, a criterion, right? What what are we going to allow as far as components? And once we did that, we said, okay, we're, we know that we're going to be doing, because we're a new company, we don't have a lot of revenue. We're producing a product that has 20 designers, which means I'm paying 20 designers. <laughs> 21 designers so we're not going to be able to pay them a ton of money what can we do how can we what what else can we offer designers that will be valuable to them because they're helping us sort of from the ground floor and we we decided that it would be beneficial for especially new designers to have us as a resource to help them with development and graphic design and art and so we we offered that and said okay here's what we're going to do what we want from designers is just a pitch a paragraph about what's your game about what do you what do you want to make a rolling right about what's your idea and so we took those ideas and said okay we like this one maybe this route will work we like this one we, this one might not work so much um, so we decided that the, it was going to be a long development game versus designers coming to us, uh, with some exception with already basically 
games that they've gotten as far as they could without sort of a publisher's eye on them. And so we just sent out a, a pitch, a request for pitches is where we started. Um, <laughs> and I don't think we ever could have imagined that we would be in this place with this level of enthusiasm and the, um, the high quality of design that we're seeing when we started. We knew it was gonna be good, but I don't think we knew it was gonna be this good. Well, that brings up a, a good question to bring Carla back in on. So Carla, what's, what's the level that you want a game to be at when you take it on? Because like Odin was saying, they were looking for pitches and like they were basically starting from the ground floor, but you're working with more developed games, but I know you like to put your own spin on it, especially as far as like the art and graphic design and stuff. So are you looking for games at a certain level or it doesn't really matter, you're gonna put your spin on it even if it's quote unquote done? Yeah, there's no game that's done, I don't think. Like, Not ever. Well, okay. So there are games, and the de designer made the game to fit what they wanted to do. But Weird Draft Games has a certain line, and we want a certain thing that goes with the game. And this does not talk about graphics or illustration or whatever. Like, I want games to be, like, highly replayable. And generally, designers don't go as replayable as I want the games to be. That doesn't mean the game isn't great, but, you know, every publisher is usually going to do something to make it fit more with their line. I know that there's some publishers that are just like, oh, yeah, it's done, whatever, and they publish it. But I want my line to be very cohesive. Um, so, yeah, I do not want pure pitches. Um, I'm willing to take pure pitches and I will like work with the designer until it's in a state where I'm like really confident that I want to sign it at that point. Um, so I'm definitely willing to work with people, but I want something where it definitely has, you know, something unique about it. Usually I go like mechanics wise, like this has, this uses some mechanic in a different way. And I'm like, yes, I want that. So is there a certain level you're waiting for before you'll sign it? So, like, you'll talk to a designer, you'll give them feedback, you'll say, you know, come back when you've made changes, or do you basically, regardless of the level it's at, decide, I want to work on this, sign it, and then continue development? Um, it depends. I have been known to, like, tell a designer, hey, try out these changes and get back with me if it's not to the level that I want. But I've also worked, like, I signed a game last July that I've been developing for a year and I'm not going to put it on Kickstarter for another six or nine months or something like that just because the designer was an awesome person that I knew I could really wanted to work with and the game was great like it wasn't like I could see where I could take it is really the thing I'm looking for combined with the people because People are so important in this industry like if I don't know the designer that well I might just like try to get the, to know them before I do the signing of the contract because I've experienced different things with designers. Um, but like finding that person that you really, really work well with, like, like I could just work on the game and I could make it a great game, but working with somebody else and like if we both have the same vision for what the game should be, like that makes it like a super fantastic game. So. Designers really matter in addition to, like, having a good idea. Well, especially it's such a small industry that people's uh, people's um, personalities are wrong. Maybe a personal brand, I guess, 
is is very important. Uh, I know there's been some issues recently with employees of certain companies saying some not great things online, and that reflects poorly on the company. It reflects poorly on other people you've worked with, and people are very quick to distance themselves from anyone that is problematic like that, rightfully so. So it's it's very important to work with the right people, and if you're trying if you're trying to be a publisher or a designer to be a good person, who you work with is exceptionally important in such a small industry where everyone knows each other, and you are basically selling your personal brand as a small publisher, as a designer. There's a reason your name goes on the box. It's because it matters who you are. Well, and like it is such a small like community, but also we all only have like a finite amount of time in our lives. Like if I can work with somebody and they don't stress me out and we can just get together and work, that is fantastic. We can get so much done. But if it's somebody where I have to like think for five minutes before I talk to them so I know that I say the right thing so they don't get mad at something or take something wrong. Like, not only does that take, like, a lot of time, but it's stressful, and there's so many things you need to do as a publisher. Like, my to-doist says that I have to do a hundred things today, and it's like, I'm not going to get going to get that hundred things done. Like, earlier in the week, I thought I would, like, get to those things at some point like I don't put on like a crazy amount of stuff on the list but there's always 20 more things that you need to get done right now like we were talking about conventions like you need to like fill out all the paperwork and do all the events and train the people and do 30 more things like business cards and making sure you have bags and we stamp our bags because I don't know I'm crazy and I want customized stamp bags um but yes, so if you can get somebody that, like, you just jive and you can just be you with them and it just works, like, that's that's so great. Like, because we're all friends here. But working with friends is sometimes the worst thing you can do. Because I've had a lot of friendships just, you know, they're over now. Because um, Weird Draft Games was four people and now it's two people and a cat. So, and I don't talk to those people at all because you know you can't get into a bit like have a business relationship with everyone that you're friends with it can add a, a different kind of stress to a relationship oh yeah like you don't want to work with all of your friends either so it's just even if you weren't the boss but like with the designer publisher relationship like i'm the publisher i get to have final say because i sign the games and i put up all the money and stuff and some people can't deal with that like you, when you get a game signed, you have to be ready for that publisher to change things and do things and not always consult you on every little detail because that would take even more time. Like, you have to be ready for this or put into your contract, oh, okay, you can't change X, Y, and Z. So that brings up a very important topic that uh, I want to get to, contracts. Um, like you said, working with friends, but also the industry is very small, so even people that aren't your friends are people you generally know pretty well from seeing at conventions or just knowing their personality from online. But it's very important to get contracts for all this stuff. So let's go back to Odin to start this. What um, like what process do you go through for the contracts with your designers? And um, yeah, you know that's uh, that's a great question. It I I went through first. I went through a lot of thinking and a lot of worrying. Like this is a little little outside of my 
my wheelhouse as far as um, as that. And then to add the order of magnitude, I, I mean, I sent out 18 at once. Um, that is quite a bit. <laughs> so um, what I did was I, I, I looked at a lot of templates and I asked um, questions of some, some um, publishers who had written a lot of contracts, especially, you know, smaller publishers. Um, and I just basically built one and I sent it out to the designers and they, some of them came back and said, you know, Hey, this clause seems a little funny. Did you think about this? And so it was a little bit of a, a back and forth process to revise it to a place where, um, we all thought it was, uh, you know, an equitable contract. One of the things that Joey and I talked about very early in the process was making sure that our company is a designer first company. And we really wanted to be able to, knowing that we wouldn't be able to pay the, you know, five to 10% because five to 10% times 20 designers, it's not really gonna work, right? The math doesn't check out. <laughs> um, not so bad. <laughs> but we wanted to make sure that we were paying them as well as we could given the constraints of the model. Um, so, and, and really not, no one came back and said, this isn't enough money with the exception of, of one person who was, we knew was tentative anyways. Um, but there were other clauses that they, they wanted to talk about, you know, things that I didn't think about, like non-competes, you know, uh, can, can the designers sell the book at conventions if they want to? Well, yes, they can, but we have to figure out how that's going to work. Right? So those sorts of things sort of the, I'm paying you for the rights to this part was the most straightforward part of the contract. As far as I was concerned, <laughs> it was all the periphery around it, you know, foreign language every, editions. Every situation is unique. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I also went into it saying, look, at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do with this contract is get you a fair deal and protect you from certain liabilities. That's why, that's why it exists. And give you reasons to say, hey, this contract isn't working anymore. We need to terminate it because of this clause, you know? Um, but it was, uh, it was an adventure. It's still an adventure. So, Carl, anything to add on contracts? I mean, you, you do a lot less at a time, so is it more of a customized thing per project, or do you have a standard contract that you start from for everyone? I have a standard contract that usually gets updated with every designer. Um, I try to keep the, the terms all pretty simple and laid out, but some designers want specific things, so I try to do that. And sometimes I learn things. Um, throughout the contract where I'm like, oh, I should really update this because this time frame isn't, you know, great always. Like, um, I think in my current, um, contracts I have that I have to start manufacturing within two years and I'm thinking about updating that to three years because if I'm going to be developing the game for a year or two years, and if the Kickstarter gets pushed out and then graphics need to happen, like three, like three years would cover that, but two years would not. Like two years seems like a long time, but it's actually not considering 
all the things that go into Kickstarter and how developed I want games to be. So that's a good segue into Kickstarter, which is pretty much necessary for small board game publishers to get the capital to start out. Uh, some people, once they get bigger, they move away and start uh, just doing direct, or they do a hybrid and kickstart some games and direct for others. So, uh, Carly, you've done several Kickstarters. Odin, you guys plan on doing a Kickstarter, if I'm correct. So what are, what are some of the things that you think about as a publisher when you're going to Kickstarter? Because it's, it's mainly a marketing tool at this point so there's a lot of things that you have to have set up ahead of time uh you can't just go in with a dream and some hope at the like you could a couple years ago on kickstarter now you need to be pretty much ready ready to go um and then board games from a report they just let out a little while ago board games was the biggest section of the games industry and the games industry is the biggest section of kickstarter so board games are definitely a, a massive force on Kickstarter. So what are what are some things that you have to do to set up your Kickstarter? Uh, Odin, you want to start? Yeah, I think it's um, it's probably different for everybody. I uh, and we are not kickstarting on our our original um, theoretical launch date. We um, moved it, so the one that we've announced is accurate, but that was not our original thought. So. You know, everything has taken longer than we thought it would. Uh, but we wanted to get to a place where we said, okay, we think these games are developed as far as they're going to be developed for the book before we launch the Kickstarter. If we need to do, you know, final edits on the rule books or update the graphic design, things like that, basically what we want is for the designers to be able to say, okay, our job here is done by the time we launch so that we can show off each of those designs if we want to, right? Yeah. Um, and that was, that's, that's been our goal sort of all along. It's, and I've been sending out updates every about five weeks. Okay, we're, you know, we're actually this, this week um, on Tuesday marks us being 15 weeks out from that Kickstarter. And wow. uh, I sent out the 15 week email and <laughs> designers, some designers came back. They're like, Oh, geez, gosh, 15 weeks. That seems really close. Um, <laughs> so, uh, mostly, yeah, being ready to go. And then because we, we got to take the long arm with it, we've got a long time to market. Right. Uh, and that was, that was important for me too, to be able to talk about my enthusiasm for the project and, what's going on with the project without just advertising, right? Um, I, I really felt like it needed to be something that's on people's minds, they know about it, and when the launch happens, they're excited about it because we're all excited about it. So that those are the two goals. There's, there's this excitement buzz and the game, the game design part is done by the time we launch. Yeah, I mean, I've been saying this a lot, but especially for small companies in the board game industry, it's so important to like you be a person first. Which I I was on a panel at um at Unpub and back in March, and that was one of the things that kept coming up. It's like you have to be a person first because everyone relates to you as a person. So yeah, you can you can have a banner ad or a Facebook ad and be like, oh, here's this Kickstarter, but I think it's more important to like 
going on podcasts and talking to people on Twitter and Discord and Facebook and BGG forums if you're someone that goes to BGG forums. Because um, people, especially at the small indie level, you're not backing a company, you're backing a person. So having that personal connection really helps build your community. And it takes time to build that. You can't just throw up an ad and someone's like, oh, I'm part of your community. You have to, what is it? People have to see something five different times before they act on it or something like that. And that comes from like talking about it to someone on Twitter and seeing someone else play it and seeing someone else talk about playing it and seeing a video about it. So you really do have to build up that community ahead of time. Uh, Carla, any anything to add? Now that you're on your multiple Kickstarters, you, you kind of bring an audience from one to the other, like you're saying... You try. You have a specific line you're building, so there is that connection. So how how do you go about your new Kickstarters now that you have that past experience? Well, it brings along some people, but not everyone, of course. Um, so you also have to do like the um, promoting of the new game and all the like going in depth and making sure like I tweet about it and show all the progress. Because I think that's one thing that my audience likes is that I show all the progress and all the different stages of my games but there's also the fact that you have to get reviewers and interviews and all those set up and that has to start happening at least two to three months beforehand so i don't start like really knowing when the kickstarter will happen until i get to knowing when prototypes will be available and that means when the art will be done and even then it's like I've never had an art schedule go how I think that it's going to go. Um, So there's that. Um, So once all the art and illustrate and graphic design seems to be on a path that I could start making prototypes in the next couple weeks, I approach reviewers and try to like line up the people I want to line up to get the game. I, again, I try to ask three months in advance because like a lot of reviewers are just so busy nowadays like um gameosity who i love um just was busy like three months out i mean every time i've asked her this year so um yes um a lot of reviewers like um are just getting bigger and there's so many kickstarters out there that they just don't have time so i might start this whole process like four or five months ahead of time um, which would also be really helpful because if you can get prototypes to re- reviewers, what you can do is once a reviewer is done, you can get them to send it to another reviewer and get multiple reviews out of the same prototype copy, which is really important as prototype copies can be anywhere from, I think my first one was like 15 or $20 and that was only a card game up to like Stellar Leap, which might might have been like $100 for each prototype. So these aren't cheap. Um, and you have to like just get them in front of people, but you have to like know that it's good and do blind play testing as well. So yeah, there's so much that goes into a Kickstarter. Like even the Kickstarter page, I'd say to start working on it at least a month in advance because um, like I do GIFs for, um, the how to play sections and the gifs they don't take forever to make like i use them in powerpoint and i'm pretty good at powerpoint but i have to make them change it into video change it into gif upload it and then get people to look at the page and to get them to go through it all and then 
okay, well, there's these 20 things that need to be fixed. Go fix those things and put it in front of people again, and they find 20 more things, and it's like a back-and-forth iterative process. But it makes sure that the Kickstarter page is really good, and while you're doing that, if anyone is interested in your game, they can click the Remind Me button, which is really cool. So I definitely recommend getting that Kickstarter page out there. Like, some people don't want you to see their Kickstarter page until it launches, and that's like, well, nobody's going to be there, like, get the email on launch unless they're following you um, on Kickstarter. Um, so, I mean, you have to make that day one as great as you can. So get the page out there and improve all the things and the video. Videos are the worst, or I think so. I don't know. I'm not, like, my face doesn't move correctly in videos, so I have to take, like, 20 takes and... I don't know. They always take a lot longer than you think that they will. Everything seems to in this industry. One more thing about Kickstarter. This is going a, a bit long. But um, so like we were saying, you do want to be very far along. You want to have your art done, your design done. But in some regard, like I, I think Kickstarter has moved away from this some as it's moved to more polished products. But the community still wants to be a part of it. There's still, like people want to go into comments. They want to vote on things, try to get stretch goals, although even stretch goals are kind of shifting for some companies. Um, so how much how much community input do you still, I know Odin, you haven't gone through your Kickstarter yet, so this is all uh, theoretical for you, but how much community feedback are you interested in? Or is it just the game's done, this is it, thank you for your money, or is it you're willing to change things if there's a problem, or are you looking for feedback to help shape the last 1% of the game? Uh, Carla, you want to start? Okay. Um, I always like to have at least something to talk about in the comments because, well, um, there's an algorithm and the more comments you get, like the more Kickstarter likes you and really the better the Kickstarter is. Like I love to get to know people and to like just interact. Kickstarter actually took away the Kickstarter Live, which I was like super sad about because um, I really like the Kickstarter Live where like I just go live and I start talking about things. I typically do like a ask me anything a couple times but I get to really know people because they like talk and there's certain people that would go to every Kickstarter live um like this woman who is in Europe Diana like I do her a lot because every couple like not every couple of months but like whenever I had a Kickstarter I would be able to talk to her every couple days when I did a Kickstarter live so that's sad and gone now but even just being able to like talk every day and get opinions on things like um, one of the things for Big Easy Busking I'm doing is um, there's crowd cards that are at specific locations in New Orleans. So I'm having people like give me suggestions for that. Like, hey, like, okay, what is your most iconic uh, location in New Orleans for you? Um, and we talk about that and we talk about like, okay, well, we want to have one at Jackson Square. Where at Jackson Square? What should it be looking at? Like, things like that to make sure like that the game is really cool um and also i've done things to name things like um in stellar leap there's all these different alien races um and i had people like just volunteer names and of those names we then voted on which one each species would be which was really cool so somebody gets to have stellar leap and they get to be like oh yeah i named the starlings like i think like um having backers be really invested in the project is really awesome because 
they will always, like, whenever they play Stellar Leap, they'll be like, yeah, I named this. This is my name right here. Well, it wasn't their name, but the, the name that they suggested on it. And they were also in the rule book and stuff like that. So I think it's just, like, a great idea to get people involved because, as you said, the community is small, and you need to kind of differentiate yourself also because there's all these Kickstarters out there. But if you make it so that people can really like get in there and know that if they back your Kickstarter, you will take their opinion and do something with it, and it can be incorporated in the game and they know it, I think that makes a lot of difference. Yeah, definitely. Oh, anything to add? I mean, you know, Carl is really smart about this stuff, um, and I would have said that after her first campaign or her last campaign. Um, but yeah, I think the key is definitely engagement. The the tabletop game community is pretty pretty diverse um, in terms of their knowledge base, and that knowledge base, they love to share it. And so if you can be willing to listen to the, the diverse knowledge that exists and in some way, A, engage with that, and B, find a way to incorporate it into your project, I think you're, you're winning. You know, um, you're engaging people, you're making, making it feel like they're making a difference. Um, you know, uh, the Jamie, the Jamie Stegmeyers of the world, um, he's got a lot of people who really support him without, you know, he's not paying them to support them. They're giving out of the kindness of their hearts because they believe in the projects that he's working on and, and part of that is that they've been able to be engaged with that process. Um, so any way you can engage your audience and talk to them directly is going to be a win I think for everybody involved. Now uh, granted there are always going to be the the ones who you have to choose carefully how to respond to or not um, because they just are there always. Um, but one of the one of the big mantras for me, especially in tabletop games, is good feedback poorly delivered. So maybe what they're saying is actually pretty astute. It's just that it didn't come in the best way possible. And you have to be able to wade through that and say, okay, is it good feedback? Maybe I need to take a look at this, even if it made me put me on the defensive at the time. So yeah, in engagement is the key. and the great thing about Kickstarter is you're going to have direct interaction with your supporters, which is super cool. And I agree with you, Carla. I miss, I miss Kickstarter live already. So yeah, I mean, it's uh, feedback. definitely cuts both ways. Uh, but I think in general, the community is a great space with a lot of people that want to help. Uh, it's a labor of love from designers and publishers and the players. Even if you are making a profit of this, you're still very much, engaged in community building because you need a community to buy your games so this has gone almost an hour and a half so that's uh not quite my longest episode because of the unpub one last last week that was uh quite long but uh why don't we wrap this up and let's just end it with contact info and if you want to highlight any of your projects that are happening now or soon carly you want to go first I am Carla from Weird Draft Games and Galactic Raptor Games. You can reach out to me by email at contact at weirddraftgames.com. I love talking about board games or whatever the thing is that you like that's 
well, if it's about board games, I will probably enjoy it. So, yes, feel free to email me. I'm also on Twitter, at Weird Giraffes. I have Facebook, Weird Giraffe Games. And um, Big Easy Busking is either on Kickstarter, and this is the final day, or it's just ended. But don't worry, there'll be pre-orders. Um, that will be slightly different in some way. Probably. I don't know. It's not there that time yet. But it is for you that are listening to this. Um, anyway, Big Easy Busking. You are a street musician in New Orleans, and you are trying to win it big um, by playing your best songs um, to the right crowds. Um, it's an area control game for one to five players that plays in about 45 minutes. Um, and if any of those things sound interesting, I'd highly recommend checking it out because we are funded and we are reaching stretch goals. And I'd really appreciate it if you just went to the page and told me what you thought about it. So yes, um, check out Big Easy Busking. You can get to it by going to weirddraftgames.com slash B-E-B. Or there's also a link, just it'll be in our header to um, go directly to the Kickstarter page. And I'm sure I'll remember to put it in the show notes too. Uh, any future projects that you can talk about or just focusing um, on Big Easy Busking right now? Just focusing on Big Easy Busking right now. Cool. All right. And Odin. All right. My name is Odin Pong of Inkwell Games. You can find us uh, at inkwellgames.com. We have a Facebook, also Inkwell Games. My Twitter is at Pongodin. That's P-H-O-N-G-O-D-I-N. And I'll type that out for Chris to put in the notes. Um, that's, that's what I got. We're working on Dice and Ink. It's a two-volume roll-and-write anthology, 20 games, 21 designers. That'll launch on Kickstarter August 27th. And uh, get there quick, because it's going to be kind of a short campaign, we think. That's all I got. Awesome. Well, thank you both for coming on the show, and thank you to Dan for joining us earlier. And hopefully this gives some information to anyone looking to start a business, some things to watch out for, some things to definitely make sure you do. And... Thanks for listening. That's all for this episode. The Board Game Workshop is a member of the Indie Game Report. You can check out their reviews and interviews at theindiegamereport.com. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our inventor-level supporters. Chris Turner, Vegan Al, Brad Bachelor, Roscoe Schock, Vas Cottis, and Corey Mudderman. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash theboardgameworkshop. You can follow the show on Twitter at thebgworkshop and on Facebook at theboardgameworkshop. Join the show's Discord channel to discuss episodes. You can call the show's Google Voice number at 725-222-8249 and leave a question or contributor segment for a future episode. You can get the links for these and all show notes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening.